You're listening to Hosea, the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Hosea. We'll get through a couple more verses. It won't just be one today. It'll be three. We started the series last week on Hosea, and we just talked a little bit about the importance of studying the Minor Prophets. I really think that the Minor Prophets, it's a section of books that that I have personally neglected in some ways, and I think a lot of Christians have, because we really don't know what they're for as far as what, how, what benefit we can gain from reading them and studying them. And part of that is because when you think about what they are, they're pronouncements of judgment on a people who lived 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. Uh, and you wonder, like, how is God going to use a pronouncement of judgment on those people when the judgment has long since passed and now the church is, is started and we have the new covenant, we have God's people through the, the church. How is that going to be relevant to us? But I hope last week we saw a few reasons why it is. We learned so much about the character of God. We find that God is a just God, that God is a holy and righteous God, that God is not a God who is willing to just allow sin to go unpunished, that God is a God who keeps his promises. And so when he promises that people will be judged if they do such and such thing, we see in the minor prophets that those promises are are being proclaimed and people are being readied for the judgment that God has promised will come if they behave in such a way. And that's actually comforting for us because it means that everything that God says, whether it seems good to us or bad to us, will come true. That there is, there is not a part of God's counsel, a, a part of the word of God that won't be fulfilled. And that's true for his grace and his mercy and his love. And it's true for his justice and his righteousness and his holiness and his promise to judge sinful people. So we find that in the minor prophets. We also find that we are forced to confront the sinfulness and hopelessness of mankind. Why are the minor prophets so necessary? Why don't we just skip to the New Testament, or why don't we just talk about all of Israel's successes? Because they didn't exist, right? Because when we go through the history of Israel, we find failure after failure after failure. Even even after God has shown them such great mercy, even after God has given them time and shown the way of the repentance, even after God has brought them into bondage and they have at that point realized their need for him. Every time life gets good for Israel, they turn away from God. They turn to their own gods. They, they turn to whatever makes them feel good at the time. And they forget about the deliverance. They forget about the redemption. What an important lesson that is for us. It's not just Israel that has a tendency to stray from God at times. It's us too. And so what Israel does is it shows us what humanity is like. This is the chosen people of God, and yet they're constantly falling back into the sin that they've been saved from. And so it shows us the ugliness of the human condition, the hopelessness of mankind apart from the grace of God. What we learn when we study the book of Hosea is that we are Gomer. That in this analogy, as we study the character of Gomer, as we see how ugly her sin is, as we see, as we look at her and wonder, how could you make that decision again? How could you go from the husband that loves you? We're forced to confront the fact that we are Gomer, right? That's, that, I mean, that's, that's us apart from the grace of God. 
Finally, we saw last time that the prophetic books, the minor prophets, help us to see clearly the bridge between the law and the gospel. In the law, God promises blessing for obedience, and he promises cursing for disobedience. He promises punishment for disobedience. And the minor prophet shows us that cursing. But also in the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament, in the law, we find God's promises of redemption. And so what we see is this, this time of promises of judgment being fulfilled, but still the echoes and the whispers of the coming redemption that will, that will come fully in Christ. And so it's this nice bridge for us. The basic ingredients of the prophetical books and specifically the minor prophets is the warning of impending judgment. Warning, judgment is coming. There, there is a chance. Just, I mean, let's be clear in all of this because you can read the minor prophets. You can read the book of Hosea and say, God seems like he's angry. He seems like he's mean. He seems like he's just a wrathful, jealous God. Well, that's true. I mean, he is angry. He is wrathful. He is jealous. All of those things are true. And he's rightfully all those things. But what we see there is that he is still in his anger, in his wrath, in his just judgment of these people, giving them a time to repent, giving them a warning of judgment to come. There's still a chance. I mean, when Hosea bursts on the scene to preach and to give his life as this incredible analogy, we find that the children of Israel have like 30 to 40 years that they could have repented, that they could have listened to Hosea. So for 30 or 40 years, they just brushed what Hosea said off to the side and they saw their country grow from prosperous and and certain and hopeful to this country that was defeated and in bondage. Almost completely destroyed. Then we see the description of sin. So we're not left wondering why God was angry. It's very clear why he's angry. We find the description of the coming judgment. We find a call for repentance and the promise of future deliverance. And so we read last week and I'll read again this week the first verse of the book of Hosea. We should pray and then we'll read the first verse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity we have again to study your word. And we thank you for a book like Hosea um, that you've included in your word that is this incredible picture for us of your jealous love for your bride. And to think, Lord, that you consider yourself a husband. And to think that we are such sinful people, that we are a uh, a bride who strays from you so constantly. Lord, I pray that you would use the story of Hosea's life as you tried to in Israel um, to convict us and to help us um, stay faithful to you. And Lord, we thank you for um, your unending grace and your mercy. We thank you that you're true to your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Hosea had a long prophetic ministry, around 40 years. He preached to the sinful nation of Israel, which was the ten northern tribes of Israel. These are the tribes that split off when Rehoboam had been foolish and not listened to the wise counsel, and so Jeroboam took reign over the ten northern tribes. And from the time of Jeroboam the first until the time of Jeroboam the second, who was the king when Hosea began to preach, from those kings and their twenty or so in between, 
or no, there wasn't 20. There was about 13 in between there. All of them were sinful. All of them were evil. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't one, there was one king that like was like, well, he wasn't as bad as the previous ones, but he still did evil inside the Lord. So there was, there was nothing good coming from Israel from all those years. And so the judgment was hastening soon. When Hosea started preaching, the land was plentiful. The people were rich. They were full. They were free and they were secure. Their enemies were weak and their alliances with other countries were strong. And from a human perspective, when Hosea began to preach about the impending judgment, Israel had every reason to say, Hosea, what are you talking about? Look around you. Do you see any of God's judgment here? We're rich. We're full. We have all of these alliances that are so strategic and helpful so that if any country were to come against us, we would have help from all these places. We are strong. This was their attitude. When Hosea ended his preaching ministry, Israel, the people, were enslaved. They were hungry. They were poor. They were uncertain of anything. And they were without hope. Forty years, and that much changed. And in all that time, think about this. If the people would have listened to the word of God spoken through Hosea, everything would have ended differently. We've, we've seen it in other places, right? We saw it with Jonah and Nineveh. They, he went, they preached, they repented, and God didn't destroy them. And yet we find with Hosea, no one listens. I think this is so true in our lives. We despise the correction of God's word, and yet we so desperately need it. It's funny because there are times that you preach a message and you can tell that people are tracking with you. You can tell that people are listening to you. You can tell that they like what you're saying, right? They're amening. There's excitement in their eyes. There's this joy that you're preaching this message that somebody else really needs to hear. And they come up to you after, that was such a great message. I, I, I pre- honestly, I really appreciate that our church is so encouraging. So don't stop that, okay? But... But sometimes you, they come to you after and you think, well, part of the reason that, that you liked that message so much was because it wasn't really about your sin. Maybe it was, it was about a sin that, that somebody else struggles with and you were just so glad that that person heard it. But how often do we hear a message that was directed at our sin, that we felt the conviction of God, that we had this thought, oh man, I, I wish he would just stop. I wish... I wish he wouldn't be so hard. I, 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 or we start thinking, well, maybe he's like pushing it further than he should. And may, maybe that's not really all true. And we're just kind of justifying ourselves and justifying why it's not really about us. And we don't sit there and enjoy those messages, right? In a lot of ways, we try and dismiss them. We try and forget them quickly. And that's what Israel was doing. And yet it's those messages that, that we so desperately need. It's the times when God's word convicts us, when we sit and listen to preaching and we don't feel good and we're not laughing, we're, we're feeling the weight of God's word on our, on our consciences, on our hearts. We need that. And if we would receive it, we would find with it life and freedom and peace. And what's incredible is most of the time that we are not listening that, to that kind of preaching we're doing it because it's grading against something in our flesh. And, it, and we, what we hear is that God wants us to be in bondage. 
that God is trying to take away from me something that I need, something that is good for me, something that, that is going to bring me peace and joy and fulfillment. That's what we hear. And, and the amazing thing is the opposite is completely true. When we are willing to give up those things that are promising joy, that are promising satisfaction, but never delivering, then we find true satisfaction in Christ. Right? We, we find that the Word of God is true and that there's actually freedom and peace in life that comes with the correction of God's Word. So we, like Israel, and like most people throughout history, doubt that God's words are true or that God's words are good. And the fact is, His words are true, and His words are for our good. There are two themes, the book of Hosea, judgment for God's people and restoration by God's grace. We said last week that the book afflicts the comfortable and brings comfort to the afflicted. A man named Dwayne Garrett said this, he said, Hosea is as startling in its presentation of sin as it is surprising in its stubborn certainty of God's grace. And I love that because we look at the presentation of sin and it's, it's shocking. We'll see this in a moment. It's, it's unsettling to us. And yet it is verse after verse is pounding in the fact that God's grace is still just as sure. He goes on, he says, it is as blunt as it is enigmatic. It is a book to be experienced and the experience is with God. And that is very true of this book that it brings us into the emotions of God. It brings us near to recognizing the heart of God for lost sinners and how he feels when when sinners are unfaithful. Chapters 1 to 3 is an allegory of Hosea's life, and chapters 4 to 14 record the preaching of Hosea that basically explains the allegory of his life. So Hosea chapter 1, let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. It's almost surprising how often you can fit one word into a verse three times, isn't it? Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredom and children of whoredoms. For the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. <clears throat> this is what the Lord said to Hosea. In fact, what we find at the start of verse 2 is this is the first thing that he said to Hosea. Can you imagine being called as a prophet? And there's, I mean, I'm sure at that point, this anticipation of the message that God will have for you to bring to the people of Israel. I know that when you're, when you're thinking about going into ministry and you're thinking about preaching in the future, you're thinking about all the times you're going to stand up and have scores of people trust Christ as their Savior as you deliver God's Word. It's just this exciting thought in your mind. The reality is often very different. But Hosea is called to this ministry of, of preaching and prophesying to the people of Israel. And it says, the beginning of the word of the Lord to Hosea. So he doesn't say, Hosea, this is the message I have for you to deliver. This is what I want you to preach. He says, Hosea, go. Take unto you a wife of whoredom. What kind of message is that from God? 
You're starting as a, a prophet. That's not the first thing you want to hear. That's the last thing you want to hear. In fact, I think you'd probably be like, what? <laughs> what? God, you got to be kidding me. Like, there's no way that's what you want me to do. And so that's why it's interesting that in verse 1, it says the word of the Lord to Hosea and the beginning of the word of the Lord. It's like Hosea is just making it clear. Just so you know, I, I'm like, this was from God. This really was the word of God. I'm reiterating that. There's not too many verses as startling to us as verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1 in the whole Bible. I picture some sweet older lady doing their, their devotions in the morning and sitting, you know, with a cup of coffee and, and reading the Bible and, you know, gleaning from God's word and reading verse 1 and being like, okay, we're, we're getting into, you know, this prophetical book and then reading verse 2 and it's like, Take unto you a wife of whoredom <laughs> and children of whoredoms because the land has committed great whoredom. And like, it just, it almost seems like it doesn't jive. Like it's, it's shocking to think of, what? <laughs> what? What would they be thinking? There's one word for that. This verse seems like it's scandalous. Like it just doesn't fit. doesn't sit with what we expect to hear. It's not like the other prophets that, that are told to go and preach and, and do this and that. It's, it's actually very shocking. The command is given to marry a whore. Not just any whore. We want you to marry a whore who will keep on whoring so that you will have children as a result of her whoring that don't belong to you. What a command. What an expectation on Hosea's life. This command is so shocking that it is the source of a great deal of discussion among commentators. And essentially, from what I've gained from reading these different commentators and what they think that this verse means, what they're trying to do is make this command a little less shocking and a little more bearable to believers who cannot imagine that God would ever command such a disgraceful thing. doesn't make sense to them. So God could never, God would never, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sit right. There must be another explanation. Well, there are other explanations. There's actually a few. And so I want to go through a couple of the, these explanations so that we can understand kind of where people go and where we might tend to go if we're not just taking this verse at face value. Here are some of the ideas proffered by various commentators. The first one is this, that Hosea was told to marry a woman who is not necessarily a prostitute but who would become a prostitute after their marriage was consummated. And so he was kind of telling him to marry a woman who maybe was a little bit loose morally. Maybe she flirted a little bit too much. Maybe she was, you know, not the most modest dresser of the, the whole group. And he was kind of saying, marry this woman who maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't pick out as the epitome of, of purity, and someday she's going to become a prostitute. Well, for Hosea, I think the idea of this is that God would never have a prophet marry somebody who is impure, right? That, that just wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't work. And so they're trying to make a way that, that Gomer is somewhat pure at the marriage point, but that later on she went into this. And, and that, that kind of absolves Hosea of marrying somebody who is already so impure. And I can understand why you're saying this. First of all, I, I don't know though how that would be more helpful for Hosea I want you to marry a wife who is already a little loose and later on she'll be like full out. I don't think that's making Hosea feel better. Doesn't, to me, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't, I mean, if God came to me and said, marry this person, I'd be like, because this is what they're going to do. I don't think 
it would matter if that was already happening or, or was going to happen in the future. It doesn't feel like it's better. But the biggest problem is I think it's not the plain reading of the text, right? I mean, that's not what the text says. The text says, go and marry a prostitute. Go and marry a whore. It's not go and marry a potential whore or a potential prostitute or someone in the future. And I think this actually jives better with the analogy that's being presented. He's not saying that God came and married a people who had the potential for sin that would someday really fall into great sin, but at this time they were really doing well. They were actually like, they were covering up their sin pretty good. He said marry people who are who are whores. And so that, it makes a lot of sense to me. When God marries people, they are not, they are not only capable of evil, they are evil. They are people who bear the image of God, who were created for the glory of God, and who have turned their back on God and committed spiritual prostitution by worshiping anything other than God. And this really puts the whole world into the category of Gomer at the beginning. Right? It's not just believers who stray. It's not just the Israelites. It's actually all people who were, who were created for the glory of God and who bear the image of God, who are, in a sense, walking away from their creator and the one they were designed to worship to go glorify other gods, to worship other things, to create their own gods. And so the whole world at the beginning falls into this category. The category is narrowed a little bit later in, in chapter 3, and so it's, it's going to be awesome when we get there. So Hosea was told to marry a woman. Oh, so, that, so that's the first idea. The first idea is that, it, that it's just she had potential for this terrible sin and wouldn't in the future. The second idea is that Hosea was told to marry a woman who was a spiritual adulteress. In other words, she was a woman who worshipped false gods and that the adultery was to serve as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God which was also a picture of her unfaithfulness to God. It's a little bit kind of confusing. The problem is, I think this is, this is kind of weird. That her spiritual adultery to God is portrayed as unfaithfulness to her husband. So in other words, Hosea becomes God so that you can portray the feelings Hosea would have as how God feels. So Gomer was unfaithful just like Israel's unfaithful, but we're going to pretend that, that Gomer wasn't unfaithful to God, that she was unfaithful to her husband, so that Israel can see better how the unfaithfulness makes God feel. It's just a little strange. I had a friend ask once, what if the story of Jonah is completely allegorical? What, what if it's just a story in the Old Testament, it's a parable in the Old Testament that's meant to teach us some, some truth? And and if it, if it was true, if that was the case, it would teach us a great truth, right? And so the, the point the person is making is, listen, I, I want to believe that the book is from God and that's helpful, but what if he didn't actually go into this whale? What if that's just all a story to teach us about, you know, us following God's plan and not straying from it and that, that God gives second chances even when we do? What if that's the case? Well, the problem with that, I think, is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is pointing back to that saying, just in the same way as this historically happened, I will die, go into the grave for three days and rise again historically, like physically. 
Like, just like that happened, this is going to happen. But if you make Jonah an allegory, then all of a sudden it's like just as this allegorically happened in the past, it will really happen in the future. It really softens the point that Jesus is making. It actually kind of maybe even goes against the point. It would almost be like just as he allegorically went into the belly of the whale, I will allegorically go into the ground. But that's that's not what Jesus means there, right? He means that it's going to happen for real. And so when we start to change things so it suits us better, like it's almost like it, it feels better in our mind that she was a whore against her husband or against God than being a whore against her husband. So we, we find that more acceptable. Like it's, it's worse if a woman is unfaithful to her husband than if a woman is unfaithful to God. But the question is, is that actually worse? Is it worse to be unfaithful to your husband than it is to be unfaithful to God? I mean, you really can't do the first without the second, but it's, it's still, I feel like what we're doing is we're just trying to soften what's going on here. So John Calvin had a new idea. And many of the post-Reformation theologians saw the events described as parables that Hosea told about his life that never actually occurred. So Hosea basically went around making up stories about his own life to teach Israel a lesson. Now, if I'm Israel and a guy starts making up stories about his life and having kids and having this wife who was a whore and, oh, woe is me, I feel like I, I wouldn't like the guy. I would have reasons not to listen to him other than, I don't like the judgment that's coming. I just don't like the way it's... it's be, I mean, you're making yourself this martyr who... It sounds weak. Um, that this is... They would say that this is just very imaginative and descriptive preaching. Um, but I can't believe that Hosea's story here would have any impact on his audience who knew that none of it was true. Parables can be helpful, but you don't make up parables about yourself. And so I think when we look at this story, we find way too many specific details for it to be a parable. We, really, we even get told about like his first daughter being weaned. What's that? How does that fit in a parable? Right? What, that's just a, a detail, a specific detail about what happened and the timing of it and that we don't find in parables. And so the story re- reads as something that's true. Now, what John Calvin said is he said, well, there's nothing that shows me that it's not a vision or a parable. Like, if you're going to call something a vision or a parable, it's not on the burden of, of the other person to say that, no, it's actually reality. It's on the burden of the person who's calling it a parable or a vision to say, this is why it's a parable or a vision. There's nothing that indicates that. Everything indicates it's reality. So, there are a few more ideas. They don't get any better. Finally, I'll give you the obvious answer that I think is true. That God told Hosea to marry an actual whore. That he told Hosea to make a prostitute his wife. Now you might say, but would God do that? Would God? Well, it's kind of a ludicrous question for us to ask. Because the only way that we can determine what God or what a person would or wouldn't do is if we know that person so fully that we can figure out their character and why they do what they do and how they act. And and when we look at God, we cannot say, I understand God completely. I've got his mind figured out. I I know his psychology. I know what makes him tick. And so because I know so much about God and I have God all figured out, I can determine what he would and would not do. That's not, it's not okay for us to say God is inscrutable, right? He's beyond our understanding. 
Now, God has revealed some things about himself, and he's revealed some things about his life, and we can know those things, but we will never fully comprehend God. And what we like to do is we like to put God in a box, right? We like to find the God that we're comfortable with. And we might really ask the question, well, would the God in my box do this? And our answer might be no, but God is not in your box, right? And so... I don't think any of us understand why God does what he does. Does anybody understand why God spoke the world into existence in the first place? Why he created the universe? I mean, are we going to, are we going to, I feel like this is what, what God said to Job. Like, Job, were you there? Do you have any idea why I do what I do? You, you have no clue. Does anybody understand why God told Isaiah to walk around naked for three years? Naked and barefoot. Why did God tell his prophet to do that? I mean, you read Hosea and it's like, here I am, Lord, send me. Like, what's the task? Well, Hosea gets to marry a whore and you get to walk around naked for three years. Why? Well, it's a sign of coming exile and judgment against Egypt and Cush. How is it that? I have no clue at all. But, but it is. And so this is, this is God. God does things we don't expect. We can't put him in a box. And so would God do that? I don't think it's a good question. We cannot predict or understand but we might ask the question, could God do that? Because we know that God will not violate his word, right? He will not violate the character that he has demonstrated. Well, the, the closest place we can go to answering that question is Leviticus chapter 21, verse 14, where he says, a widow or a divorced woman or a profane or a harlot, these shall he not take, and this take to wife, but he shall take a version of his own people to wife. These are the instructions that God is giving the priests, the Levitical priests in Israel. But Hosea is not a priest. He's a prophet. And so I would say that based on this, based on the, the fact that there is a specific command for priests, but there is no such command for prophets, that there's no reason that God could not do this. Okay? The fact that it's hard to believe that Hosea, a godly prophet, would be asked to marry Gomer, an ungodly whore, is the point. The fact that this is so shocking, it's supposed to drive us to recognize, to to see in a new way, the ugliness of our sin, the ugliness of the unfaithfulness, because Israel had been so accustomed to it. They'd have king after king after king after king who would worship false gods and permit them to do that. They had the land for so long run away from God that God needed something shocking he, he was actually in his grace and in his mercy giving them Hosea in this picture to, to smack them, to wake them up, to, to help them to see what they hadn't been seeing, what they were blind to, that their sin was ugly, that it was disgusting, that it was as bad or worse than a woman who is a slut against a husband who is loving. And so the book of Hosea helps us to see the depth of our sinfulness. We are Gomer. There's no escaping that. Verse number three. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblam, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And so what happens here is God, Hosea does exactly as he's commanded. He goes and he finds Gomer, 
Hey, Gomer is an ugly name. I don't know if it's just meant to to make her even uglier than she is, but in that time, it doesn't seem like it was anything weird. That I don't think there's anything to her name, but there is to the children. And so we find that the first child that's conceived, it says that he bear him a son. This seems like a legitimate child of Hosea. And, and I want us just to think for a moment about the picture that's happened here, right? We always think about young ladies growing up and picturing their wedding day and who they would marry and what it would be like and how they're going to have this wonderful, blissful marriage for the rest of their life. Maybe have a couple kids and right, they, they, they have this picture in their mind, right? Not all women, obviously, but, but a lot of girls grow up with this idea. And we don't think very often about what little boys grow up wanting to do. Maybe it just seems like all they want to do is break stuff and drive stuff and, you know, they they don't have these deeper thoughts about their future. But I can promise you that no little boy, no teenage boy, no young man just looks forward to the day he gets to marry a prostitute, right? When, When they think about their future, at the few moments that they do, they think about marrying a wonderful woman, right? They think about the, the friendship that they'll have, that they'll have this marriage that they'll love each other and support each other. And I mean, young men don't grow up wanting impurity, right? Now, certainly we recognize that there is a lot of impure thoughts that young men have, right? And, and that there are a lot of things that they do that are impure, but they never think about marrying that. It's never that idea. And so now Hosea, who has kept himself pure, who is a prophet of God, who is a godly man, is commanded to take his life and that dream, that that desire that he had someday, and say, go marry a prostitute. And now you can imagine that they have this wedding day, just like everybody else has, that maybe for a while nobody really knows. Maybe people think that she has changed her ways. Maybe there's this period, it seems like there is this period where Gomer actually is faithful to Hosea. And that they maybe have moments or, or days or weeks or months of a, of a beautiful marriage. And they have their first child. And how exciting that, would, that time would have been. And I'm still picturing as the friends and neighbors come over and go, Oh, what a beautiful baby boy. Congratulations, Hosea. Congratulations, Gomer. This is wonderful. What are you naming him? And Hosea looks at them and says, Jezreel. Jezreel. I mean, that, that's a, it's an odd name. It wasn't a name that was used very much. And so, well, why Jezreel? I mean, they knew that there was a valley called Jezreel. So what's, what's the deal with that? And he would explain that he, I'm calling his name Jezreel for in a little while, God will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and he will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Can you imagine telling your family and friends, they come up, what's his name? Jezreel. Why? Well, because God's going to destroy Israel. And from that point forward, every time you call your little boy's name, it's a reminder of the judgment that God is going to have on Israel. That he, he's not going to let their sin go unpunished. That they're going to be destroyed. I mean, can you picture what, Israel, what Jose is going through in his life? Can you picture what, what this was like for him and his community? We, he didn't live in a community like Chatham where you could lose yourself if you want to. At Chatham, you, can, you can't really. I mean, it's... Chatham, you can um, semi, and then a couple months later, it, it bites you again. Bites you again. That sounds like I did something bad. Um, <laughs> Toronto. It's not like Toronto where you get to go to Toronto and you can you know, lose yourself, and, and if you don't like this group of people, you never have to ever see them again. He's in this tight-knit community, and his whole life 
is a reminder to everybody around him of the judgment that's coming, or at least the pronouncement of judgment. Um, We'll get in more into the name of Jezreel and what it means next week, Um, but there's just a few things I want to pause and consider before we finish. The first one is the reality of the demand on Hosea's life. God demanded everything of Hosea. And I think we're crazy if we think that God is going to demand less of us. Like, he might not tell us. He's likely not going to tell us to do what Hosea did. So I, I wouldn't come in next week with a prostitute on your arm and be like, oh, God told me to. It's probably not going to happen. But he does demand us. I mean, he demands us. He demands all of us, right? We are his. We are to take our cross and follow him. Everything we are belongs to him now. We are for his glory. And so the reality of the demand on Hosea's life should remind us that God demands everything of all of his servants. The second thing I want to consider is the significance of the marriage as the symbol of God's relationship to his people. Right? Throughout the Bible, God gives a lot of symbols to help us understand the relationship. But I think one of the most intimate ones that he gives is that of marriage. Right? You, don't, you don't think of a much more intimate relationship than that of a husband and wife. And so to think that the God of the universe chooses to represent himself to his people as their groom, as their husband, the most intimate of these relationships, and not just as a husband, but as a faithful husband who's willing to take them in their sin, and we'll find later who's willing to call them back in their sin. What a husband that God is to his people. Later on, it's going to say, you're going to be faithful to me just like I will be faithful to you. You're going to give yourself to me just like I will give myself to you. That's the way the God of heaven represents himself to his people. And that's here in the Old Testament, and it's certainly true of the New Testament. We find that the church is constantly seen as the bride of Christ. And so that is the depth of his love, the closeness of this relationship. The third thing I want us to consider is the affection that God chose to have on undeserving people. If we ever feel we're out of, of that, that area where God loves, that, that we're too sinful, that we've done the thing too many times, that we've, we've been unfaithful too often, look at this story. Remember that God loves sinful people. And he doesn't stop loving them because they're whores. That'd be a terrible thing here. Just walking in here. Right? God's, God's, I mean, you, we find here, isn't it true? I mean, sometimes, sometimes we need preaching that is, it is law. It is, you know, this is, this is what God demands of us. And so we should do it. But I, I think this preaching for some people, it's just so powerful. This is how much God loves you. He loves you in, in the sense that, that he would marry you in spite of the fact that you're a, you're a prostitute. There's no greater love than that. There's, there's no more of a decision to love, even though there's nothing lovable about that person. And so it demonstrates the incredible love that God has chosen to have on undeserving people. And finally, I want us to consider the hurt that is caused by unfaithfulness to God. Right? The ugliness of the sin of adultery is here pictured as the ugliness of the sin of idolatry of unfaithfulness to God. That the heart of God is not that he's just sitting up there and he has these rules and, and you know, if, if you break a rule, then he's just going to crack the whip. 
That he's not just this kind of slave master that is that is detached from the people that he's mastering over, that he's lording over. But that God sees himself, he views himself as a husband, and when his wife is unfaithful, it is painful. If you were to try and hurt, I mean, you, you all could hurt me in a lot of ways, right? If you wanted to, you have the ability to hurt, right? We all have the ability to hurt. But we know that the person that can hurt us the most is the person that is closest to us in our life. And for married folks, that should be your spouse. And so you have the ability to hurt me, but you don't have the ability to hurt me like Tara does. Right? Her ad- committing adultery, her unfaithfulness to me, her giving the love that she's promised to me that, that, that rightfully I deserve. Like It rightfully belongs to me to someone else giving that away, that would be that would be devastating. I can't imagine a hurt greater than that. And that is the picture of how God feels when his people are unfaithful. That it, it's as though they have gone out and committed adultery against a husband who is so loving. Uh, this really helps us to see the heart of God. That he is wounded by the unfaithfulness of his people. And so, we look at these first few verses and we see this call on Hosea's life. And we realize maybe why God chose to put Hosea through this this difficulty. To teach us such an incredible lesson about God's undeserved love on us. And the effect that our unfaithfulness has on him. So hopefully, these lessons will help us. The problem is Israel didn't listen, right? It's very, it's very possible to read the words of Hosea and be like, yeah, whatever. So let's not do that. I mean, let's, let's learn the lessons we're being taught here. Thank you, and God bless.